Well, this uh, Advent season, we're going to be looking at a number of pictures in Isaiah about uh, the coming of God's Savior, and we're going to be considering together how Jesus is portrayed, what we can learn of Him, uh, given these words were written several hundred years before the birth of Jesus. It should, I think, encourage us to see the plan of God throughout uh, His Word to send this Savior who fulfills in so many ways what was written of in the Old Testament. But it should also challenge us to see our day uh, today and consider what knowing Jesus truly means in 21st century Livingston. So we're reading this morning from Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll read from verse 1 to 7. Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There are, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, when you realize that the shops are kind of winding themselves up for Christmas coming, this glut of adverts on the telly. Every shop now has to have its own advert, and maybe not even one advert, but a series of adverts, some kind of whole campaign linking together the story of some individual who's involved in some kind of Christmas activity. And it's interesting to see how the shops are pouring money and effort into producing these campaigns that captivate people year after year. And it doesn't matter whether it's John Lewis or Argos or Aldi or Lidl or Marks and Spencer or whoever it is, whoever hasn't gone bust this year, they have their own uh, advertising campaign that's intended to make you feel something about Christmas, not just to know something about their shop, but to actually to to connect on an emotional level with the shop because they want you to come and to buy their stuff. And as we think about Christmas, uh, as Christian men and women, the temptation for us is to do the same thing. It's to to think about Christmas, or, or not to think, but to feel about Christmas a certain way, to associate with it emotions. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's everything fine in, in having that 
that warmth of feeling if you, I, I don't know what your practice is over Christmas, but if you get the family together and you're around the table and you're not arguing for once, you're enjoying a meal around a table and, and you're sharing presents and, you're, and you get that sort of warm feeling of, of nostalgia and of um, that, that kind of warmth of love and fellowship and, and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Maybe that's not Christmas for you. I, I don't know, but, but certainly that's the way we're encouraged to think about Christmas. And there's a very real risk that we, that we do just slip into that way of not thinking but feeling and making Christmas all about how we feel instead of thinking about what we know at Christmas. Because there is in the Christmas story something of that warmth, that, that nostalgia, that, that we have these cozy little scenes on Christmas cards and, and so on of, of a family in a stable around a manger, and it all looks delightful. I have absolutely um, no confidence that it was this delightful, warm, comfortable scene. I think it was probably quite cold, and they were probably quite frightened and not really sure of what was going on, and yet this is the, the, the picture that we have. But there is something in that coming of Jesus at Christmas that should tell us something, not just make us feel something. And in fact, I want to say, without wanting to sound like some kind of doer, cold Aberdonian, that, that really our priority should be at Christmas, what we know of the coming of Jesus. Because what we know transforms the way we act. What we feel tends to peter out by the end of December and we're just feeling that we need to go on a diet and get back to the way of life that we had because we're done with Christmas. And it all evaporates. But what we know lingers on into the year. What does God offer people at Christmas? He offers a baby, okay? Fine, it's a baby. But it's not just a baby. We realize that. We know that this baby, as Isaiah says, has come to be this great ruler, this great king. And we find Isaiah telling us in this section of his, uh, of his book that, that this coming king is going to be one who commits to his people. There's been an awful lot that's gone on in, in Israel's um, recent history from Isaiah's perspective that isn't great. They've, they've been in, if you go back into chapter 8, wandering off as they so often did their own way, doing their own thing, thinking that they were to live in a certain way that would bring blessing and encouragement to the nation. But Isaiah comes and says to them that this isn't actually going to bring them any kind of blessing at all. And if you go back to the opening few chapters of Isaiah, you'll read the great encouragement that Isaiah has of recognizing that he is a sinful person and he has no real right to tell other people that they're sinful. And yet God commissions him to do so. And the great commission of Isaiah is that he's going to go and tell the people and they're just not going to listen. That's going to characterize your ministry, Isaiah. You're going to talk and talk and talk, and it's going to have no effect as far as you're concerned whatsoever. In fact, it's going to have the opposite effect to the one you want. It's going to make them even worse. And it doesn't matter whether it's Isaiah or Jeremiah or any one of the other prophets. This is what the prophets were commissioned to do, to go and tell the people to the point where the people were just blind and deaf and ignorant and couldn't care less. Because there would be some who would... And God would use this as a means of drawing out a faithful people uh, to himself. And so as we open the, the passage, we have this, uh, this commitment of uh, God in sending a king to be a, a savior to his people. And he was going to commit to his people by showing them the difficulties of living in darkness, not the blessing, not the encouragement that they think they're going to receive. And what I want to do, because this is an Old Testament passage, 
is I want to take a little bit of time. We're going to explore two points this morning, so you can knock a third of the time off the sermon. There you go. That's a freebie for you. Two points this morning where we're going to look at what this may have meant to Isaiah, because we remember Isaiah speaking to people in his time. Isaiah isn't giving this prophecy thinking, you know, two and a half, three thousand years down the line, there's going to be a wee group of people in this place called Livingston in Scotland who are going to wonder what these words mean for them today. He's writing to his own time, recognizing that there will be some future greater fulfillment of what he has to say, and then we'll think about what it means for us today. But in the opening of this passage, we have this This statement in chapter 8, there is great gloom and darkness falling on God's people, but now in chapter 9, his tone changes, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the nations. And we have in the north of Israel this place, Galilee, which really is, is nothing, it is of no real significance or value. And in Jesus' own day, centuries on from this, we have that same statement made when Jesus comes along and the disciples are trying to figure out who this guy is. And it's Jesus who comes from that region. And, and they're talking together and saying, can anything good come out of that place? Surely not. It's a backwater. There's nothing of any value in that part of the world. And yet, this place has been made glorious by God. His Savior is going to come. There has been great gloom, but now coming is a great light, a great, the great glory of God Himself. And we find that it's coming uh, to the people of Israel to do two things. To to display the judgment of God coming upon His people who don't want anything to do with Him, who are going their own way, but also to reveal the salvation to come. The people of Israel have been living in a great degree of confusion. They have been living with the peoples around them, letting them come in, bringing with them all the customs and religious practices of their day, just as we have the issue today of the way of thinking of our world that we allow to to seep into our way of thinking. We allow to come into our churches and, and shape how we think and we act and how we gather and how we worship and and so on. They had the same problem, but they were convinced or they had become convinced that living the way the world lived would be the route to great blessing. Because look at all the nations around them. Look at Assyria, look at Egypt, look at all the, the, the mighty nation, whether it was the, the kind of the growing power in, in Greece, or whether it was uh, Syria, or whether it was uh, the Edomites, or what, regardless of what nation it was, Moab, any one of these nations, they had experienced great growth and great power, and power grew and waned and, and, and so on. But, but the nation of Israel had become accustomed to thinking, if we live our lives like those people, We'll get all the blessings of those people. Does that sound familiar to you? It's how our politics works today. Identify some country somewhere in the world that's got something right. Glasgow's managed to tackle knife crime, and you hear about London politicians all the time talking about how Glasgow dealt with knife crime. So we just need to do that. If we just copy that, we'll get the same blessing. Or we look at Australia and we look at the way that they've dealt with um, getting sort of kids off the street and into sports and so on. We think, well, if we just become a sporting nation like Australia, then all of our youth crime problems will be solved and, and so on. That's how our world thinks. So it's how we think. Yes, we know that the Bible says to live this way, but it doesn't seem to bring much blessing to God's people. 
to, to abandon the ways of the world, to, to make sacrifices for the sake of the church, for our brothers and sisters, for Christians across the world. It doesn't make any sense to give our money and time to this place when we could be spending it elsewhere. So let's live the way the world lives and we'll receive all the blessings that it receives. Israel were struggling. And for all they invested in the way of the world, instead of bringing them comfort, instead of bringing them wealth, and it did bring them some wealth. There are a number of kings listed. If you go through um, Kings and Chronicles, you'll find a number of kings are mentioned that brought great wealth to the nation of Israel. And the really fascinating thing you'll find out about them is that they're given the smallest amount of space in Scripture. Omri is given seven verses in Scripture and was one of the most um, beneficial kings to Israel in terms of their financial clout that Israel ever had, but he's given seven verses because he was wicked and he led the nation the wrong way. And so we find Israel sliding not into greater and greater power and affluence and confidence, but greater and greater fear. The more they invested in that way of life, the more fearful they became because the more they realized that everything was upon them, they had to bring about their own blessing, the fear of failure becomes even greater. We can't afford to fail in this way. We can't afford to give our money to the temple. We can't afford to take the time to go to Jerusalem and worship. We can't afford to to make sacrifices and to, to stop lending money at interest or do all these things that the world does. We just can't afford it because if we do, we'll lose money and power and we need more. It's all on us. And so they lived not just in fear but in slavery. Because we need to make this right, because there's an enemy over the hill who's coming and could wipe us out in a moment. There is a plague that is coming a few years from now that will wipe us all out, and so we have to make sure that we are solid and secure and safe. It's all on us. And we find that instead of living in greater freedom by abandoning the ways of God and all of the, the requirements that God had on them and the freedom that it bought them from escaping from that, we find it just brought greater slavery, greater fear, greater confusion. In our society, we see exactly the same. And in church, we run the risk of doing that very thing, of having uh, th- this view of the world that says, if we just live this way, Yes, lying's not bad, but sometimes it's just so necessary if we're going to keep our boss happy, if we're going to keep our friends happy. Yes, we don't want to go and and, and do those things, but, but it's going to be so much more hassle for me if we take the hard road and say, no, I can't go there, no, I can't do this. So much easier. My family might not speak to me if I have to abandon that way of living, and I just don't. I want to be with my family. Who doesn't want to be with their family? We think it will bring us greater freedom. We think it will bless us beyond measure. And what we actually find in the end is that it brings greater slavery because it makes everything in our lives all about us. And so the Savior comes and we're told the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. And Jesus, when he comes, exposes the darkness that we've been walking in. That's why we know we need a Savior, isn't it? Because we see the folly of that old way of life. I just got to that point where I realized I was digging the hole deeper and deeper, and I could never dig myself back out. I needed someone to come and save me, someone to bless me, someone to restore me, and I couldn't do it myself. And so Jesus comes, 
And he reveals with this great light both our sinfulness and our need of a Savior, but the provision of salvation that he supplies, that he provides. And so we come and we cast ourselves upon the one who's exposed our sinfulness because he's the only route to salvation. Israel is supposed to learn this in their day. This is why Isaiah proclaims this in his day, so that they might be a light to the nation. That's what they were supposed to be in the first place. But they'd given up on that because it was hard enough being a light to themselves. And so Isaiah reminds them the king is coming and will shine a great light. And he's talking, I think, about Hezekiah in his day, who was one of the few kings who actually did a semi-decent job multiplied the nation, increased its joy because they'd been refocused on God. And they rejoice as with the joy of the harvest. Things are going well, not just in terms of their military might, but their worship of God. That has been rekindled and is regrowing because they've come and they've seen the Savior that God has provided, not in in the sense of saving them from their sins because Hezekiah couldn't do that but in terms of seeing the way that he has led them in the right way, pointed them towards God for all that he was a frail and in many ways failing king. And so we see a parallel with Jesus from the old into the new that he comes not as a weak Hezekiah, but as a perfect Savior, the Son of God, to do this thing again, to lead us in the right way. But it must come with the exposure of sin and the realization that we must cast ourselves upon our Savior and live in the way that He calls us to go. And this is why when Jesus comes, He gives things like the Sermon on the Mount. It sounds like a list of rules to follow, and in some ways it is not to provide us with salvation, but as a means of working out the salvation that He's already given us. And it sounds like we're going to have a much harder life if we live that way than if we live the way of the world. But as with Israel, so with us. That although it seems harder, it is the far better way of life than the way of the world. It is the way of blessing and of healing and of restoration and not of death and slavery. Because it's not all on us. It's all on Jesus, our perfect Savior. So Jesus comes and he commits to us by being willing to show us the darkness of our lives. And he then shows us the joy of living in the light so we live with greater clarity. Oh, no, I didn't, I didn't want to move that one. There we go. He helps us live with greater clarity. The Savior is a wonderful counselor, somebody who offers not just good advice, but essential counsel for us to follow. We find that the Savior comes to, to help us live with not just clarity, but with protection. He is a mighty God, which is incredibly telling of anyone, and it gives us a clear indication that Isaiah cannot only be speaking about a king of his day, whether it was Hezekiah or not, we don't know, but must be speaking of someone greater to come, great David's greater son. And so it is, we find that the Savior is not a man, but a mighty God, and so provides us with all of the protection that having a mighty God in your life affords you that if salvation rests in his hand, who is powerful enough to tear it away? If he says you will be blessed, who can come along and say, no, you won't? If he says this is the best way of life that will afford you this kind of, this kind of life, then who is to say, no, it isn't? No, it won't. We live with clarity. We live with protection. We live with love because this Savior, we find, is an everlasting Father to His people. Now, we know that Jesus, as we think about the Trinity, is not the Father. God the Father is. But 
But Jesus is acting as a father to his people, thinking about being the head of the house who will lead us along, which is why I think Paul draws so heavily, as we've been thinking about in Ephesians, about Jesus being the head of the church, as the husband is the head of the home, as the father is the head of his children, that he provides the direction, the guidance for us to follow in so that we would live a righteous life that accords with our salvation. And we find as well that we live not just with clarity, not just with protection, not just with love as our Father leads us to follow in His way, but also with peace, because He is the very Prince of Peace Himself. He is is the, the, the King, as it were, whose rule is marked by peace over all things, peace with God, but a peace that is to come between men that will last for all eternity. Now, as Isaiah proclaims this to Israel, they look forward to this, and as he proclaims it to us, we look back and we see Jesus. Because in our society, as in theirs, we need to listen to wise counsel, because if we're honest, we're not very wise ourselves. Sometimes we do all right. If we're honest, most of the time, it's not great. Our lives aren't pretty. We say foolish things. We upset one another. We upset ourselves. We damage our own lives and the lives of those around us. And our society does exactly the same thing. Our society is hell-bent, literally, on its own destruction. We find it doggedly pursuing any image of man that doesn't fit with the Bible. Anything. Whatever the Bible says, we want literally anything else. And we'll latch on to that and make it the center of everything we are. It's why there is so much gender confusion. It's why there is so much confusion over the issue of marriage. It's why there's so much confusion over who has the right to educate our children. Is it parents or is it the state? Who has rights over our kids? Does the state have right to take our kids away if we're not going to teach them what lines up with what our current government says is the the wisdom of the day? All of this, our nation, our culture is bent on its own destruction under the guise of wisdom. And yet it's foolishness. As it was in Israel's day, so it is today. We need wise counsel. We need someone who's going to lead us. Someone who's going to rule over us. And as I say that, I don't know about you, but I feel ruling over me. I don't like that. I don't want somebody to rule over me. I hate having somebody tell me what to do. That's why I hated school. Detested school. Who wants someone telling you what to do? Well, actually, we want someone to tell us what to do. I don't know about you, but the most productive and most blessed times in my life have been those times when I have served God as He has asked me to, despite the fact that it's going to cost me an awful lot to do so with my friends or or with people around about me, whoever it may happen to be. Because actually, we like it having someone saying, this is where you ought to go. This is what you ought to do. We need the comfort of somebody else offering us guidance. We need someone who's going to provide us peace because we certainly can't provide it ourselves. We find that we are living in darkness, but there is salvation for us today. And so in Jesus, we have this perfect Savior that's come. The question is whether we're going to avail ourselves of Him or not whether we're going to remind ourselves of the fact that we have made Him our Savior or not. Are you walking in darkness today? The thing I love about this passage is Isaiah is speaking to God's people. You're not speaking to the Amorites who don't know God. 
He's not speaking to the Egyptians who have a million gods, none of whom uh, line up with, with the words of Scripture. He's not speaking to the Assyrians or the Hittites or, the, or any other ancient powers of his day. He's speaking to God's people who say, I know him, he is my God, and I serve him. And so the challenge for us as we read Isaiah over the coming few weeks is to see very much ourselves in this place. Are we walking in darkness? And if we're not, then glory to God. But are we still trying to live as if we walk in darkness? It's foolishness. Jesus says that, doesn't he? He says, why on earth would you turn your hands to the plow and keep looking back? why, Why do you keep longing for the old way which brought nothing but slavery and death when there's a new way of life and blessing in front of you? Walk in that way. So it is for us, the challenge before us this morning. Do we know what Scripture says about Jesus? He is coming to be our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace, and of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. When we're part of His kingdom, it never ends. The way He is leading us will never end. And so the work he's doing in your life will never end. He is preparing you now for an eternity of glorifying God. And I know sometimes we struggle to believe it. I know sometimes we can't believe that God would ever love anyone like us when we failed again and again and again. I know sometimes, perhaps worse, we look at other people and think God could never love them because they are so frail and failing. And yet, for those who walk in darkness, there is a great light. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government of us will be placed on his shoulders. So will we walk in that way and call others to walk in it that they might receive the blessing that we have? What do you know about Jesus this Advent season? Who is he to you? Because this Christmas, that more than anything else, needs to be aligned with what Scripture says so that we worship right, so that we grow in the right way, and so that we call others to serve the right God and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. So what do you know this Christmas? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, this Advent season that you would impress upon us what you say in your Word, not what we feel this Christmas season. Lord, all sorts of feelings come with Christmas. Contentment, happiness, sadness, loneliness, fear. Lord, there are so many emotions bound up in this season, and yet, Lord, we would ask you to cut through all of that and to impress upon us what is true, not simply what we feel about it. Lord, have us know our Savior, and Lord, have that knowledge transform us through the renewing of our minds. Lord, have that knowledge lead us through those cold and dark times when we are perhaps walking in darkness, or we feel we are. Lord, when we've confessed Jesus as Savior, but we still keep hankering after the old life, Lord God, in every way we pray that you would reveal to us who Jesus is to us today in our lives in light of what he has done for us 2,000 years ago in coming into this world to be our Savior. Lord God, we ask this so that we might glorify you, so that we might worship you correctly, so that we might serve one another truly, and so that we might proclaim the gospel passionately. Lord, we can't do these things unless we know our Savior. So, Lord, help us to know him. In Jesus' name, amen.